Good morning, friends. It's good to have you here today here at First Christian Church, both here in the West and also those of you in the East Auditorium. We're very glad that we are together worshiping the Lord and declaring His faithfulness. And I invite you to uh, take your Bible, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, it's really right towards the front. Maybe you don't have a Bible with you. If so, here in the West, there's... Um, Somebody moving around, um, there's some of the pew rack in front of you. In the east, there's somebody moving around the room right now. I'd be glad to give one of those to you, okay? Let's take a look at Scripture today. And I, to start our discussion in Scripture, I want to, well, you know, when you go to seminary, there are lots of tips they give you at, at seminary about how to do pastoral life and how to do this, that, and the other. One of the things in preaching class, there's a class called Preaching Homiletics, and one of the things that you learn in preaching class is they say, don't tell too many personal stories where you end up with the hero, because otherwise it just is, it does, it's not believable after a while, because none of us are heroes that often. Well, that's good advice, but I'm going to change it up today. I want to tell you a personal story when I was anything but a hero. It goes back probably more than 15 years now. Uh, I was in my office, and I say 15 years because I know where my office used to be, and I remember the phone call as compared to where my office is these days. And um, late in the morning, midweek, and the caller, uh, their family had been part of the life of our church for probably 30 or 40 years. I know the records. They go back to the 60s, and this is maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere in there. And... um, Intricately involved. I mean, here every week, that sort of thing. So really well known, and um, the conversation just didn't go well. It's a good way to put it. Um, It went something like this. Wayne, our father has been ill for many days, and you haven't visited him yet, and we're really quite upset with you about that. Now, to be honest, I was quite surprised, because I didn't know he was sick. I mean, now we do house calls. Back then, it was, I mean, a house call was usually something I did every day when the church was smaller. We, but now, other people in the church help manage that with me, if you will. And so we do that every day. And so, but what was weird about this, this wasn't a request to say, hey, dad's ill. He's been ill for a couple of days. We go see him. But more so, it was, you haven't been there. And this was a complaint. And you kind of get that. You do enough ministry. You understand that people, not all, you don't always meet people's expectations. But the fact that this was brand new news to me was a little bit, I don't know what happened. The conversation just went from there. I managed to hold it together for a few minutes. And I said, well, I'll gladly go by the house, but we really wish that you had called us and that not just assumed that we would know he was sick. And the response was this, you're the pastor, you should be there regularly, and you should know anyway. Well... I don't know what happened. But I'd obviously got up on the wrong side of the bed that day. Because my response wasn't very pastoral-like. It was just poor. Who are we kidding? Um, I said, well, Ben, no, our son Ben, um, he was probably about 10 years of age at the time. I said, well, our son Ben was sick with the flu last week and you didn't come visit us. It was the wrong response. (laughs) Because there was a lot of heat behind my statement. There was a lot of anger, and it was unkind. It was inappropriate. And the caller said, I can tell this is a bad day for you. And 
And I knew immediately that my anger had interrupted my day and probably my relationship with that caller and the family. So I immediately left the office and within 20 minutes, was, I, I knew where the caller worked. And so within 20 minutes, I was standing at a counter like this asking to speak to that person. And the person who's right there says, oh, we know who you are. Oh, great. <laughs> we wondered if you might show up. Oh, God. So with that, the boss comes out. And with a very few selective words, which are inappropriate for me to tell you today, told me that I was the worst ministry he'd ever heard of, and it went on from there. And no, I was not going to get to see the person who had called the office. I remember standing at that counter going, man, my foul up. What do they think of me now? What do they think of our church, and what do they think of Jesus Christ? That conversation, that brief phone call, started a downward cycle between the family and First Christian Church, between the family and me. We never recovered. I tried to make things better. I worked in a number of different ways, but it was a catalyst in the conversation that eventually caused that family, multi-generations, to leave the church. And in all honesty, my inadequate response has had some ongoing implications that I think have some eternal impact eternal consequences. Because, I, because of the way it went, I kind of keep tabs on what's going on in that family in the community. They've never connected with another church. Their children, who are now adults, grew up in the last 15 years or so without any input spiritually, and they are not connected with the church. They now have kids. And I carry this sense of, if you will, responsibility for their anger toward Christianity and their animosity toward our church. And that that conversation has some eternal implications. Now, I need to tell you, I've got lots of stories like that. I mean, I've got lots of places where I fouled up. Um, sometimes I think, if you're allotted one mistake a day, then I'm way past September of 2018. I mean, I'm working, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm up around somewhere January 17th of 2030, somewhere there, is where I am. Um, way past my allotment for September of this year. But so, so I want to spend some time with you today. How do I respond to that foul-up? And how does God respond to foul-ups? I mean, does God work in grace despite our actions on our worst days? We're going to look at that today. And in doing so, we're going to carry on with our fast review of the book of Genesis. Here's why we're looking at the book of Genesis. Our family ministries department this month is starting a three-year project. We know from research that kids often leave high school. They graduate from high school, and they often graduate from their faith. And we have lots of kids around here, and we don't want that to happen. We also know that research tells us the best way that they don't graduate from their faith is if they know the Bible. And so we are starting a three-year project where all kids, whether they be in the nursery area or in the elementary or even in junior and senior high, they're all each week going to look at the same basic portion of Scripture, obviously graded, and the curriculum is based on the age of the kids. But, and it's going to take them three years, starting this month, to get through from Genesis through to the end of the book in Revelation. They're going to go all the way through the Bible, and then we'll start it again. So the idea is that when your kids, if you've got kids, when they come home, whatever their age are, whatever the age may be, they'll come home with something they've learned in church this weekend, and you can have some table discussions around that 
uh, when they come home so that you go, okay, what did you all learn? And even if you don't have kids, at least for this month, we're going to give you a preview of some of the things they're looking at. And so for today, we're going to take a look at a fellow by the name of uh, Abram or Abraham. He's a fellow who fouled up like me with some regularity, but he's also known as the father of Israel and consequently the father of Judaism and Christianity. And um, he followed God and is legitimately praised um, throughout scriptures. And your kids will be looking at this in the weeks ahead, so you'll be ahead of the curve, if you will. But beyond following God, there's also a very awkward backstory to his life, and we'll see if we can figure that all out as he's this guy who says, I want to follow God, but I got all this mess at the same time. Read with me, Genesis chapter 11, we'll jump in. This is the account of Terah's family line. Genesis, this is Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, okay? This is, um, if you will, Abraham's, Abraham's um, nuclear family. This is who his father was. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Noah, and Haran. So he's got three sons, okay? And those three sons get married and one of them dies. Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. So now he's down. He's got three daughters-in-law, two sons left, okay? Abram Nahor married, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she wasn't able to conceive. So you've got one son dead, another son who's having babies, and then one son and his wife who can't have babies. That's Abram and Sarah. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law to get Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But, and here's what's interesting, when they came to Haran, they stayed there. Now, this is Abram's father. We'll get to Abram in just a minute. And Terah, Scripture describes him this way. He's a man who had a great vision and a great plan. We're going to go to Canaan. We're going to go to the promised land, if you will, even though it's not yet known as the promised land. We're going to go there, but he settles for second best along the way. Apparently, there was something within him saying, you know, where we live right now is not the best. Where we manage life right now is not the best. Let's take a new start. Let's get, let's get something else going. And so we're going to move. The whole family is going to move. But somewhere along the way, the kids get married. One of them dies. It becomes complicated. And they only get part of the way. And he settles for second best. He could have, if you, as we're going to discover, Terah could have been the father of the Jewish nation. But because he settled for second best, God says, okay, Terah, you're not going to do the one who's moving. I'm going to talk to your son then, all right? So let's keep reading Genesis chapter 12 now. The Lord said to Abram. So Abram has moved with his dad from Ur of the Chaldeans. They've landed in Haran. And now God says to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what happened? So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his his nephew Lot, and everything they owned. So basically what you have is Abram. He's not yet known as Abraham. Abram takes up where his dad left off. And in those days, think about what's going on here. You didn't just pick up and leave your family like we have people, you know, our kids live in, we have one set of our kids live in, in New York and 
you know, it's, it's a long way away, but you can drive there in a, in a day. You could fly there in a few hours. In, in, in this day and in this culture, ancient world, you didn't just pick up and leave and say, oh, we'll, we'll fly home for the weekend. No, it wasn't. When you left, you left. Leaving was a novel idea. But you know, friends, when it comes to following God like Abram's choosing, sometimes following God means leaving something else. If you're going to follow God, you're going to have to leave some things behind. And sometimes leaving is the best way to discover God's best for you. I mean, this applies to all things. But think about how Scripture talks about marriage, for example. How marriage is the process of young people usually leaving older parents. I mean, those of us who are older, we have adult kids, right? And we want, our, we want our adult kids to do well in relationships and particularly in marriage. And if you're a young person and you're thinking, man, I, I wonder what my life's going to be like, you need to know your folks, they want the best, of the best of life for you. And for parents, that means letting go. And the pattern of marriage as detailed in, in Scripture says this happened in the Garden of Eden. That when Adam got, uh, when, when, when God gave in, you know, Eve to Adam, the scriptures state this, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his father and they become one flesh. It's not like, well, I get to hang with mom and dad and then I'll just be married. No, there's this sense that for that new nuclear family to be established, there has to be some leaving. And for the sake of Abram, this leaving meant a huge change. He'd never been to Canaan before, as far as we know. And yet by following God, the prophecies of Scripture came true. I mean, when you read this, that I'll make you into a great nation and will bless you, verse 2, that came true by, because by following God's prophecies there, or following God's promises there, Abram, in fact, did become the father of a great nation. He is the father of the Jewish people. And if you think about it, we are sitting in pews today worshiping Jesus, a Jew who would not have been born the way in which he was born if Abram had not followed God. We are the recipients of Abram's wise willingness to say, I'll go where God calls me to go. Now, that of course means that he took on new challenges, new places, new people, and in the long run, a new spirituality that was eventually called Judaism. What does that mean? Well, that means he had to change. And following God, friends, it means changing. And we, we chat about change around here with some regularity, and I'm glad we do, um, sometimes. But who are we kidding? Sometimes change is not fun, and you hear it from me all the time, because I'm aware that the legacy of our congregation is that some 30 or more years ago, this congregation took a look at its future and made some very difficult but essential shifts in its ministry profile. And those shifts were in play long before I arrived on the scene in 94. I mean... Um, we have the ministry footprint we have in our community because people back in the, in the 80s said, what are we going to do for the 21st century? I mean, way ahead of the curve, you know, many decades ahead of the curve. And I remember sitting in the interview process, listening to the people of our church, many of them who are here today, say, you, if you come, you need to know we're going to expect you to help us change and we're going to be people who think about the future. That sort of thinking has become very clear to me again in recent weeks. Perhaps you're aware that Leslie and I have um, been back now like uh, 10 days or so from a trip in which we um, went on your behalf and visited congregations up and down the, the East Coast. We lead an organization called Disciple Heritage Fellowship. It's a, 
ministry outreach of our congregation. 70 congregations around the country look to us for leadership, and that started in January, our leadership role. And so I was a little unclear as to all that's going on, so we thought, well, let's go take a trip. And so we went, we started, we drove out to Washington, D.C., and we went up and down the East Coast a number of times in various places. And there are a lot of churches that we have out there. And we, we, we met some lovely people. We, we, it was a listening tour. We discovered some vibrant ministry settings, but sadly, truthfully, we mostly learned of congregations struggling in ministry. Many of them in crisis, and some of them so deep in crisis they don't even realize they are in crisis. And you've heard me say this, that some of them, if not many of them, are just a few members' deaths away. They're just a few funerals away from those churches going out of existence. They're in missional trouble. Why? Well, in a nutshell, they failed to adapt to new ways to express their faith and worship and mission. They've chosen to forego change. They're stuck. Now, I want to tell you, they're very faithful to biblical theology. I mean, they have orthodoxy absolutely settled. They know what the Bible says, and I'm really glad for that. But even as they have holding on to Scripture... They've forgotten that that scripture should have an impact on how they reach their community. They've forgotten the mission. Now, they, they have these wonderful statements of faith. You can see them in the lobbies. You know, you go in there and they've got, this is what we believe. And it's on a pamphlet and it's been sitting there for 25 years. Beside other pamphlets that have been sitting there sometimes for 25 years. And you go, blow the dust off. And I'm thinking, do you realize that congregational guests in the 21st century are not really interested in pamphlets anymore? They want to know what's going on on your website, and, and these churches have no thoughts to websites or anything like that. And I get, I get it, maybe, but here's the reality. Their ministries are dying, if not already dead. And I know church isn't like it used to be. In some ways, church was simpler in the past. I don't know that that's always the case. Can't say that in every situation, but things were easier at times. But I'll t- say this. You may pine for the days before the digital world invaded our lives and frankly invaded our ministry spaces. I don't long for those days of the past. You know why? Because I'm quite convinced that where we are in the 21st century right now in 2018, these are the best days for us to be used by God. Because why? We are the people of God of 2018. We don't want to be the people of God of 1970. The people of 1970... They can reach the people of 1970, but we're the people of 2018. We've got to reach the people of today. Here's what I'm convinced, that a congregation that wants to minister, if if a congregation wants to minister with a life-energizing power, and in the process demonstrating a life-changing freedom that's available in Jesus Christ, that congregation has to model change. Because if if you're going to walk with God, you have to change. God's going to say, I like who you are today, but I've got plans for you for a better you tomorrow. See, we met some wonderful, Jesus-loving people in each town and church we visited. Some of them, though, it seems to me, not only love Jesus, but they love the Jesus culture of the 1970s and the 1950s, and they fail to realize that the story of Jesus Christ never changes. He was born as the incarnate Word of God, God in the flesh. He ministered, he died, he rose again, he's coming again. They fail to realize that that message that never changes has to, with each generation and with each year, has to be presented in new and fresh mediums. The presentation of the story of Jesus Christ has to always adapt 
to all tribes and all nations and all eras. And church, the church, capital C, has done that successfully throughout 2,000 years when we say the message stays the same, but the way in which we deliver that message has to shift. And congregations have to change. And friends, sometimes it gets under our skin, I know. But if we're going to do what Abram did, he said, I'm going to follow God, and that means I'm going to leave some things behind, and I'm going to change to move toward the future. And also, in the midst of that change, you see something that's really kind of cool, and that is that God brings about grace. Following God always brings grace. Here's what I mean. Read with me now this really awkward story. Chapter 12, beginning at verse 10. And uh, for the sake of children in the room, read between the lines. Okay? It's a little bit beyond PG. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but let you live. In other words, you're so beautiful, you know what's going to happen to you, and I'll be dead, unable to prevent it. So, say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Seems odd, doesn't it? He's going to lie. When they came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman, And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. He paid for this woman. Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. He sold his wife. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that, and read between the lines, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. What's going on there? Well, from other places in Scripture and throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we know a little bit more to this story. This is thousands of years ago when family life was significantly different than today. This is thousands of years ago before science gracefully told us that marriage between individuals within tight nuclear families was not a wise idea for the sake of the genetics and for the sake of the health of future babies and so forth and so on. In fact, Sarai was Abram's half-sister. Same father, different mother. So you could say when he says, she's my sister... That might sort of be true, but to say she's not my wife, what's going there? Isn't he out and out lying? Well, he didn't say she's not my wife. He just said she's my sister. What did he do? He stretched the truth. He, he, He didn't tell the whole story. Now, maybe, maybe in some convoluted way his thinking was like this. Okay, so if we show up as a married couple, I'm dead meat no matter what. And as a, as a dead man, I can't protect her in any way. But if I'm alive, maybe I can have some say in what happens to her. Maybe that was the thought. I don't know. But, on the other hand, what did he arrange for his wife? He arranged for her to be put in Pharaoh's household. And he was paid for it. What would we call that today? Would we call that sexual slavery? 
you'd think, okay, Pharaoh figures it out. I'm getting sick because I'm with another man's wife. And he rebukes Abram. And Abram goes off skulking, you know, down the road with his integrity shot to pieces. You'd think he'd learn a lesson, right? Well, we're never doing that again. That was dumb of me. You'd think that'd be the lesson, but no. Just a few chapters later, just a few miles down the road, new leader, new ruler, if you will, a new setting, the same thing happens again. And this time, a different ruler takes a fond view of Sarai's appearance, and Abram says, oh, she's my sister. And once again, Sarai is left in another man's house and left in another man's arms to fend for herself. Is this, is this the guy we're looking up to? Is this the guy who started the Jewish faith, the Jewish nation? Is this the forebearer, the forefather of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Is this who is in our line, in our lineage? Yeah. See, here, friends, here's what's really cool about this. That despite these glaring personality glitches, despite these appalling struggles in his integrity, despite his poor decision regarding his wife's welfare, you know what happened? God still used Abram. He became Abram. And what it tells us, the Bible is clear about this, that God's grace runs deeper and wider and longer than Abram's errors. And I find that really helpful. See, I make enough errors in my life to to make me wonder, how can God's grace cover this? And when I think about the errors I've made, I often think about that family who've left the church because I didn't serve them correctly. And my hunch is, if you count up your errors, you've got just as many as I do. As a matter of fact, your numbers might be getting close to mine. Yet the story of Scripture is this, is that Jesus came to die on the cross, and the message of the cross is that Jesus' cross is about grace and forgiveness. See, when Christians say Jesus died for our sins... We're acknowledging a deep need. We're acknowledging we've made errors in the past. We are making errors, and we will make them in the future. And those, those mistakes can cover a wide range. They can be everything from a conversation that went bad on a phone through to, if you will, hopefully not, but they go as far as a man selling his wife into sexual slavery, or it could be from an inadequately managed conversation, I guess all the way through to murder is what Scripture would tell us. Matter of fact, the scriptures go beyond just calling them errors, right? What do the scriptures call them? These things that we want to say are mistakes. The scripture calls it what? Sin. The truth is, that phone call that came my way so many years ago regarding the father who wasn't being served correctly, and fair enough, whatever. My response wasn't just a bad moment and getting out of the bed on the wrong side of the bed one day. My response Regardless of the circumstances, my response was sin. And Abraham here has made a sinful choice regarding his wife. I don't know how you categorize them, but one sin is another sin, right? If you, if you sin, you sin. You're, you're, you've fallen short of God's expectations, of God's plan for you. You've made sinful choices in the past, and you will do so again in the future. But there's the reason for the cross. Your punishment, my punishment for that sin, it was paid through Jesus' death. It's been taken care of, friends. It's all done. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah tells us exactly how it works. Jesus, it says, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that was due us, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. I love it. 
I love it. It's awkward, it's hard, it's, oh, why? Yeah, but it's, I love the fact that God's grace covers us. Abram chose to follow God. He chose to leave. He chose to change. In the midst of really sinful choices, God extended grace. And he did have his name changed to Abraham. He had a son who had children, and they became, they became the forebearers of the nation of Israel. And God graciously forgave the sins. That's great news. That When you read, it says, I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. That's exactly what happened. Despite all the stuff coming, God's promises came true. And friend, God's promises will come true to you today. I'm convinced of it. Absolutely convinced that his grace can cover you completely. To that end, would you stand together, please, in both rooms? And um, I'd like to pray for us all. But before we pray, uh, let me say this, that... um, on the other side of this prayer, in both rooms, here in the west and in the east, there's going to be some people at the front of both rooms who would like to pray with you about any matter that you have taking place in your life. The worship teams are going to lead us, and as they lead, maybe you're here today and you'd say, hey, um, I, um, I don't know Jesus Christ, and I don't know this grace yet, and I want to know more about this grace. If that's you, we'd love to pray with you. Or you say, I just got a whole bunch of errors and mistakes of the past, and I'd love to... Um, deal with those as well and get God's grace to cover those. We can, we'd love to pray with you about that or any other matter of need. Perhaps you say, hey, life's really good and I just want to thank God for that. Whatever the case, we'd invite you to step forward as, as uh, the worship teams lead us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, I pray for my friends today. Uh, the truth of the matter is I, I doubt that any of us have done anything so crazy and so horrific as to selling somebody into that sort of slavery and that sort of life that Abram did twice. But uh, Lord, uh, regardless of the horrific results of that, the truth is we've done things that are just wrong regardless. And we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you that your grace covers us that uh, we, we, we can be people, Lord, who step into change. We can be people who step into... There's some things we have to leave behind. We're going to lean into you for all of that. In Christ's name, amen.